Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you? You're in the right place, that's for sure. Being in the house of the Lord, no better place. No better place. So, I, I just got to tell you guys, you know, some of you during the cafe asked me who I was picking in the Super Bowl. They're trying to get the pastor's insight as, as to who's going to win so they know where to place their bets. I'm not telling. I'm not telling. It's off limits. No betting. Anyway, all joking aside. Hey, a couple things. Today's Pastor Rob's uh, last day. So last night we had some cupcakes for him. Uh, today there was, a, there was a cake. I don't even know if any of the cake is left, but there was a big old cake uh, in, in the cafe, so there might be some left, but please uh, say your farewells to him uh, if, if you have time. That'd be fantastic. Uh, can you go ahead and throw up that slide of Chris and uh, Renee? So this is Chris and Renee Dubose and their daughter Finley, who's five, and their son Deacon, who's three. Uh, this is the Lord's provision for our pastors in Heath, Texas. So we are finally there. It's been many weeks, a lot of hard work, a lot of prayer. Many of you have been praying, and just thank you so much. So um, I think you should have gotten an insert in your bulletin, right, of, of a picture of them and a little bio. So they will be here on Thursday. They're flying in on Thursday. Uh, I'm going to go pick them up at the airport, and uh, they're going to be at Rock of Ages on Friday night. Uh, and then Chris is going to preach at all three of our services next weekend, Saturday and both on Sunday. So, so delighted. And they'll leave uh, Sunday night. Um, on the very bottom of that insert, there's an email address for Chris. And so I've asked, uh, I'll be asking all three services. You're the third one. So I did it last night and this morning. Um, ten people who would be willing to just email them and say, um, been praying for you, can't wait to see you, can't, w- can't wait to meet you. Um, so I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. If you're the 11th person, you can't email them. Okay, you've got to be one of the first 10. Thank you. There's one. This is like an auction. I see that hand. Okay, just keep it. That's about 10. Okay, stop. Okay, thank you. All of you who raised your hand, would you? <laughs> yeah, man, I, I don't have any paddles, right? We need paddles. Um, th- yeah, if you can email them, thank you so very much for doing that. We just want to love them and welcome them. Um, so be, just be praying for them as, as all this is just going to be new and different for a lot of people. But gosh, am I excited about that. So grateful for the Lord's provision. They're an amazing couple. And it was a really, we interviewed, or the team interviewed um, four incredible uh, couples. And it was just really a tough choice. So thank you so very, very much. Good to be with you guys. Wahoo! Love this. Love, love, love doing this. What a privilege. I'm going to open up with this quote from Aldous Huxley. Anybody read, read The Brave New World when they were like in high school, right? So this is who wrote The Brave New World. He, this is a great quote. He says, That men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all lessons that history has to teach. Isn't that the truth? We just don't seem to learn very well from our own mistakes or the mistakes of others. And so the book of Nehemiah is us studying the mistakes of people, and the book of Nehemiah is about people who were studying the mistakes of people before them because they hadn't learned themselves. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 9. Let me just give you a, a recap of each of the first eight chapters, okay? So in chapter one, if you recall, God's people got shipped off to the Babylonian Empire, to Babylon, and then the Persian Empire conquered Babylon. And so it, this takes place during the Persian Empire. So in chapter one, 
Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer, and he gets news that things are not good back home in Jerusalem, right? The, the temple's destroyed, the walls are broken down, the gates are burned down. And so that's chapter 1 of Nehemiah. So in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to the king, he asks the king, hey, can I go back home and, and get things fixed and restore the city and restore the walls? And so the king grants him permission to head back to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 3, that was chapter 2, right? So in chapter 3, um, we get a picture of the church, all, these, uh, all of God's people from different professions doing different projects to restore God's work. That was chapter 3. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we have all these attacks from the enemy. In chapter 4, we see attacks that come externally. In chapter 5, they come internally. And then in chapter 6, they come personally against Nehemiah. So the enemy tries externally, internally, and personally to stop God's work from getting done. Sounds like real life. And then in chapter 7 and 8, which we covered last week, in chapter 7, the city's done, the walls are, are finished, and then uh, the Lord populates um, with His people the town of Jerusalem in chapter 7. And then, the, and then the focus shifts from the wall, if you remember, from the wall to the Word in chapter 8. So the wall's done, the people are living in the city, and they open up God's Word for the first time in Jerusalem for 161 years. And so the focus goes on to the Word. And it's a day of celebration. It's the day of the Lord, they say, in chapter 8. But when we also brush up against the Word, we recognize our sin, we recognize God's holiness. And so in chapter 9, they repent. So they're, they're celebrating the fact that God's Word's opened and they're reading it for hours on end, but they also realize that they must mourn and confess and weep over their sin. And so that's what chapter 9 is. And that's what Scripture does for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful to be here to learn from You, to hear from You, to become like You, to recognize that You love us and that You are always attempting to restore us into a right relationship with you and you've provided the means in, in which we can do that by telling us in your word lord how we can live godly lives and lives that please you and so it's in your mighty name we pray that you have your way with us this morning and everybody said amen so here's a i do this i, I gotta this glasses thing's gotta stop i never know where they're you know whatever so, um, here's our outline for today, our two stanzas. The first four verses, so we're not going to do all of chapter 9 today. I'm going to do a little less than half, and I give the larger half to Chris next week. I'm just mean that way. So, we're going to do uh, up to verse 15, and then next week Chris will cover the rest of chapter 9. So, the first four verses is this time, right? They opened the Word in chapter 8, and they celebrated that they were reading God's Word, but it also led them into mourning because they recognized their sin needed to be dealt with and they needed to repent. And so those are the first four verses. And then things just shift on a dime. They go from mourning over their sin to calling out the magnificence of God. And so in verse 5, they, 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 it's a prayer from verse 5 all the way to the rest of the chapter, the end of chapter 9 is a prayer. And it focuses from, it shifts from the mourning of, of, of God's people to the magnificence of God. Okay? So that's our outline. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 9 in the book of Nehemiah. So good to be with you guys. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking this serious. Thank you for giving God your time and attention. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, 
the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt or ash upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, which is about three hours. And for another three hours, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. That's six hours. Now, on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. For whatever reason, when I was reading those verses, it just stuck out to me that God takes the concept of His church very seriously. It's just those four verses, for whatever reason, just point to the church. The church, the importance of the church. God said that He will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God protects His church. Too often in our walk with the Lord, we don't know where the church fits in. The church is how we walk with the Lord. The church is important to God. We make too much of our personal relationship with God, and God invites us to be part of His church. He invites us to be part of His people so that the church can perform the way it's supposed to perform. And that's how we grow, is in the context of the church, of which many of you do just perfectly. Look at the language here. In verse 1, it says... The sons of Israel assembled. People didn't go to their houses to repent and to mourn. They did it collectively. It's the function of a church. It's for us to collectively take sin seriously. To mourn over our sin seriously. So the sons of Israel, in verse 1, the sons of Israel assembled. In verse 2, it says, the descendants of Israel separated themselves and so we do stuff like this to separate ourselves to have a time where we spend time with God to separate ourselves from the world and spend that time together as the church verse 3 says that it says they stood they read they confessed and they worshiped just such a wonderful picture of what God has called us to we must never lose sight. We cannot and will not ever function properly outside of the church that God called us to and to be a part of. Turn to Exodus chapter 6. You have Genesis, the very beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis, then you have Exodus. Go to Exodus chapter 6. This is very important. The Lord calling to himself a people, the church that he died for. Exodus uh, 6, verses 5 through 7. Starting in verse 5, the Lord says this. He says, furthermore, I have heard the groaning of my people, my church, the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant with my people. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, my church, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver my church from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people. I will take you for my people. He has the church in mind. He has us collectively in mind. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
I think I've mentioned this before, one of the largest people groups out there in North America, maybe in the world, but I know in North America, is unchurched, believing people in Jesus Christ. They believe in Christ. They are very much Christian, but they're unchurched people. And in my opinion, floundering, because God's hand is upon His church, and it's where we're meant to be. Thank you for taking that serious. Turn to Titus. We see the same thing in the, in the New Testament. Go all the way to Titus. It's behind First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy. You'll find the book of Titus. Go to chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in today's day and age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great, uh, of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession a people zealous for good works. He died for the church. He's the bridegroom. We are His bride. He calls us collectively to Him. And sometimes we just don't make a big deal about the church as in the way that we should. The church is important to our God. First Peter says it very similarly. This is the verse that many of us know. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. We belong to Him. You can't separate us apart from Him. The church belongs to the Lord so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And so as the church, I have some questions for us. Based on each of those first four verses back in Nehemiah chapter 9, as the church, verse 1, do we mourn over sin? As the church, the church was called collectively to mourn over sin. It says in verse 1 that they fasted, that they put on sackcloth and dirt or ash. Sackcloth and dirt were symbols of mourning, repentance, and humility. They took it serious. Fasting is replacing food or activities with prayer and spiritual concerns. Fasting, I don't think people walk around much with sackcloth and ash anymore. I, I stopped last month. But, um, but fasting, I used to fast in my early walk with the Lord. And then just over the years, I just, I just stopped. And I've started again this year. I, I kind of put together some things that I wanted to do to grow in the new year. And, and so I'm going to fast a couple times a month. And, I, and honestly, it's, it's, it, I've done it already in January, and it's just frightened me. I'm like, I like to eat, man. Right? I don't know about you, but I like to eat. And I have like my routines, and I'm like, God, this is going to be so hard. But I want to I take serious the mourning and the humility and the repentance of my sin and take advantage of those times. And so I would encourage you to consider what that might look like for you in the year ahead. So as the church, do we mourn over sin? Or do we just kind of say, yeah, I kind of blew it. All right, I'll just try to do better next time. Uh, I, I, I think God wants more than that from us. It's okay to recognize. It's okay to be honest with yourself. But man, 
Drop to your knees. Do what you got to do. Mourn over your sin. We should. So as the church, verse 2, as the church, do we confess our sins? Look what verse 2 says. The descendants of Israel, God's church, they separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed two things. Their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Hey, we're going to do that right now. Would you all stand? I'm kidding. Right? And just start confessing your sins or maybe other people in the room. Right? Like, how's that going to go? <laughs> like that, but I mean, that's what they're doing. They're, they're confessing their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. It's got to be tough, right? It's tough enough to be remorseful and mourn over our sin, and now we're to do it on behalf of somebody else's sin, and especially those perhaps that have sinned against us. So as the church, do we confess our sins and the sins of others? Out of verse 3, as the church, do we spend time in the Word, in confession, and in worship? Look at verse 3. They stood and they read God's Word for three hours, a fourth of the day. And for the other three hours, they confessed and they worshipped. It's a six-hour service, man. As the church, do we spend time in the Word, in confession, and in worship? Well, the Word's difficult for me. Find a way to get through it. There's lots of resources. You must be in the Word of God, church. They spent six hours in the Word of God, confession, and worship. I'm not much of a worshiper. Find a way to worship. Is God not worthy of your humility, your embarrassment, or whatever you want to call it? Find a way to worship. He's worthy of our worship. We must spend time in His Word. We must confess our sins. We must find a way to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We must. They all work together. These three work together. As we read His Word, we become clear of our guilt and His glory. When we read His Word, we become clear of our sin that we need to confess and His glory which leads us to worship. They go hand in hand. We read His Word, we confess our sin, which is our guilt, and then we, it reveals His glory and we drop and we worship. Each one's important, but all three are imperative. Each one's important, all three are imperative. I have yet, I'm, I'm 53, I got saved at 15 for 38 years. I'm not saying they're not out there, but I'm telling you, I've not met one. I haven't met a stout, mature, vibrant, robust believer, man or woman, that did not engage in all three. I've not met one that didn't engage in God's Word and in worship and in confession of their sin. The fourth thing as the church comes from verse 4. As the church, do we understand and appreciate the role of pastors? Do we pray for them as they lead God's people in the Word, in worship, in confession, in repentance, as they attempt to lead God's people into godliness and righteousness? See, in verse 4 it says, The Levites stood on this platform and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God on behalf of the people. Do we pray for our pastors knowing that the sins and the lives of God's people are a heavy burden upon them? We were at dinner last night with some friends and it's like I, I, I always have my phone with me. 
and I just have to check it once in a while because things happen in a church this size. And I just need to be available. And then sometimes it's, and oftentimes it's burdensome, but it's a burden of joy because I love doing God's work. I love loving on God's people. It's what God's called me to. And so we see that as the church, do we understand and appreciate the role of pastors. And so many of you are amazingly generous towards us, removing as many burdens as possible. I just cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much. So that's our first stanza, verses 1 through 4. And now I want to move to our second stanza, verses 5 through 15. The magnificence of our God. Let's, let's read verses 5 through 15. So the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said this. They said, Arise! Bless the Lord your God forever and ever. How hard would that have been if you just spent six hours in the Word and then repenting and confessing your sin? I don't know if I'd have been felt worthy to be in the presence to arise and worship God because I'd be remorseful or embarrassed or mortified by spending six hours in my sin. And yet that's exactly what happens. Where am I at? I'm in verse 5, right? He says, yeah, arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, and then it starts this prayer. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed. And this prayer goes all the way to the end of chapter 9. May your glorious name be blessed and exalted above everything else. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Why should we be any different? You are the Lord God who chose Abram. You brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made a covenant with him. You were going to give him land, the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, and Girgashite to give it to him and to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise. Why? Because you are righteous, O God. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. And what did you do? You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths of the sea like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light a way for them. And then you came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and good commandments. And so you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant, Moses. And you provided bread from heaven. You brought forth water from, the, from a rock. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land that you swore that you would give them. <laughs> wow. This is one of, of a few of Israel's great national prayers. You can see one in Ezra 9. You can see one in Daniel 9 and other parts of Scripture. And for me, as I made reference to earlier, it's such an interesting, interesting transition, I think, from this mourning over sin to the magnificence of our Savior. 
transitioning from this mourning over sin to the magnificence of our Savior, from our guilt to His glory. How is it that when we are not in touch with our guilt, then we're not in touch with His glory? When we're not in touch with our guilt, somehow we're not in touch with the glory due His name. Somehow the awareness, the clarity, the precision in understanding our guilt, our sin, allows us to better understand and give Him glory for what He's done for our sin. They just go hand in hand. And conversely, somehow, the awareness, the clarity, and precision in understanding His glory, His magnificence, allows us to better understand and see our guilt. They work hand in hand. And Scripture is what does that. We see our sin, we give Him glory. We understand His glory, we recognize our sin and our fallenness. I love how the Levites challenge God's people in verse 5 when it says... Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Isn't that a good word for us? That word arise means to endure. It means to last. When you arise, can you endure? Can you last so that you and your life will bless the Lord forever and ever? Who do you think, as this prayer starts at the end of verse 5, who do you think, if you haven't figured it out already, who gets top billing in this prayer? The Lord. The Lord gets top billing. In this prayer, the Lord gets top billing. How about in your prayers? Who gets top billing in your prayer? Who gets top billing in my prayer? Look what verse 5 says. The very beginning of the prayer, Oh, May your glorious name be blessed and exalted above everything else. So be honest. How important and how well do we bless and exalt His name above everything else when we pray? Think Jesus. Think Matthew chapter 6. Think something called the Lord's Prayer. How does it start? Our Father, Jesus says, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Even in Jesus' prayer, He says that we are to exalt above all other names the name of our God. Do our prayers, that's what Jesus was saying. He's not saying pray this repetition prayer. Nothing wrong with that. It's the focus of the prayer, the attitude of the prayer, that we are to always exalt the name of God above all other names. Hallowed be thy name. I wonder, I wonder if we could figure out through the course of a week all the things that we did for our name and all the things that we did for God's name. You know, you know what I'm saying? The things that we do for, for, for our name because somehow it's going to make us look good or impress people or, or whatever that is. How many things did we do this week for our name and how many things did we do for the name of our Lord? Because it says, O oh Lord, may your glorious name be blessed above everything. If you look from these verses 5 through 15, they're going to be on the screen. Look at this prayer. The focus is on the Lord. Starting in verse 6, I'm sorry. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens. You give life to all of them. The heavenly hosts bow down before you. You are the Lord God. You found His heart faithful before you. 
verse, yeah, the end of that verse, you have fulfilled your promise. You are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You performed signs. You knew that they acted arrogantly. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea before them. You hurled them into the depths. You led them by day. You led them by night. You came down to Mount Sinai. You gave them just ordinances. You made known to them your holy Sabbath through your servant Moses. You provided bread. You brought forth water. You told them to enter because you swore to give them land. The Lord gets top billing. And I just wonder when we pray, how many times do we say you? And how many times do we focus on us and our stuff? Right? I mean, I just hope and pray that the Lord gets top billing in your prayer time to remember all the things that He's done, all the things that He is. Lord, help us, right? Verses 7 and 8 show us a God who moves and a God who does. I just love action words. I love things that show God being active. Look at some of these words in 7 and 8. It says, you are, you are the Lord God. You chose Abram. You brought him. You gave him. You found his heart faithful. You made a covenant. You gave him land. And you fulfilled your promise. Church, you and I serve a God who moves and a God who does. We serve a God who moves and a God who does. We see that already today. God's moving Pastor Rob on and he's moving Pastor Chris in. It's just what God does. And we just trust Him for all that stuff, right? What is our gracious and loving Lord moving and doing in you? What is He moving and doing in our church? And then we just join Him as He moves and as He does because He loves His church. And we trust Him with everything. We trust Him with our lives. We trust Him with our church. We trust Him with His resources. Because the opposite is is a little bit of a warning that we must be careful about liking things just the way they are. We must be so careful liking things just the way they are because that's not the God that we serve. He's an active God. He's a moving God. I've said this many times. If we're still here, it's because the work's not done. And so we should always be saying, what's next? What's next? What's next? And that's hard sometimes. I get it. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, So then, you that I love, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Right? You've always obeyed. Not only when I'm present, but even more in my absence. Work out your salvation, which means continue. It's a continual word. Right? Continually work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Not your good pleasure, not my good pleasure, not for our good pleasure, for His good pleasure. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, <laughs> I love this, right? They're saying, God, you saw. You saw the affliction of our people, our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. He saw. He, he heard. How often when we pray, when we worship, when we break bread with others in community groups, how often do we recall our Egypts, our Red Seas, those times when we said, God, do you see? God, do you hear? We have Egypt and Red Sea experiences, all of us do, and we forget them 
so quickly. We should be ready to recall not only what God did for His people, but we are His people. The Red Seas that God's taken us through, the, the Egypts that He's released us from. Oh, may we remember what He's done. Church, our loving God, He hears, He sees. In verse 10, reaffirms this truth. In verse 10, in the middle, it says, For you knew that they acted arrogantly, the Egyptians, right? You knew because you heard, because you saw, you knew. And so at the beginning of 10, because he knew, what did he do? He performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against Egypt. Why? At the end of verse 10, to make a name for himself. Oh, our God sees, He hears, He knows, and then so He delivers, right? He performs signs because He's making a name for Himself. To will and to work for His good pleasure. Mm. In verses 11 and 12, the Lord accomplished some, just some, something remarkable. In verses 11 and 12, the Lord accomplishes something remarkable. Let's read these verses. The prayer says that you divided the sea so that, they, so that your people passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. You guys ever try? I've tried this, right? Like, I'm just like, I'm just going to walk and hopefully the, the waters will part. It hasn't happened yet, but I am not giving up hope. I, I don't think that's a common experience for most people, right? <laughs> It's just so much to say there. This is so fun. So they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers, the Egyptians, right? So the water closed in. They were hurled into the depths of the sea. And then with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day. And with a pillar of fire by night to lead them which way they should go. So here's the three remarkable things that happened in verses 11 and 12. Our God, in those verses, he provided a path when there was no path. There's no path. Everything's brilliant about leaving Egypt until you get to the water. I'm at the water. I'm ticked. I'm like, are you serious? There's nowhere to go. And the enemy's hot on our tail. Things ain't looking so good, are they? But God did something remarkable. He provided a path where there was none. He dealt with the enemy with no weapons. He provides a path where there is no path, and he wipes out an enemy without any weapons. And then he led his people without a map. He did not have Google Maps. Right? He provides a path where there is no path. You ever been there? He wiped out an enemy with no weapons. You ever been there? And he led his people with no map. He knows what he's doing. There's a saying. Expect the unexpected. Right? Do we expect the unexpected with our Lord? See, that quote actually comes from Oscar Wilde. The full quote says, to expect the unexpected shows a thoroughly modern intellect. You're smart, you're wise when you begin to understand that we can expect the unexpected when we serve the God that we serve. That He will provide a path where there is none, that He will deal with an enemy with no weapons, and that He will lead His people with no map. That's the God that we serve. And then from verses 11 and 12 to verses 13 and 14, there's another interesting transition, I think. From 
Here we just saw these unconventional tactics of our God in verses 11 and 12, right? Path where there's no path, enemy with no weapons, and leading his people with no map. So we transition from this unconventional God using unconventional tactics. And then verses 13 and 14, very specific, very plain to see. No guesswork. How's this going to work? Look at verses 13 and 14. You came down to Mount Sinai, and you spoke with your people, and you gave them your law, your written word. Just ordinances, true laws, good statutes and commandments, so you made known to them your holy Sabbath. You laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your, uh, your servant Moses. And so God's law isn't a bunch of negative commands, but it's instructions on how you and I are to live godly lives. There is nothing more important in the Old Testament than the gift of God's Word. Nothing more important. Because it shows God's people that He is a personal God. That God is a personal God. And communicates with us. Who are you in relationship with that doesn't communicate with you? That's not a relationship. God's personal, and He communicates with us because He loves us. He reveals to His people who He is and what He does and what His will is for our lives. So, we, as His people, are in relationship with God. And so, in relationships, people play roles, don't they? If you're a husband and wife, the husband does XYZ role, and the wife does XYZ role, and the kids have their role. In any relationship, we have roles to play. These verses tell us that our role is to know and obey what's mentioned in 13 and 14. To know and obey His just ordinances, His true laws, His good statutes, and His good commands. His role goes back to 11 and 12. His role is to lead us while we obey. We just focus on the very concrete things that He's provided us. His role is to lead us and to provide for us, which is what's mentioned in verse 15, where he provides bread from heaven, water from the rock, and land that he promised. So we obey, and he leads, and he provides. And how does he do it? In very weird and twisted and unconventional ways. Because it's weird and twisted and unconventional to you and me, but he's making a name for himself when he does so. When he leads us down paths where there is no path. When he wipes out an enemy with weapons that we don't understand. Right? And when He leads us without a map, it's one of the most gracious things that the Lord does as He leads us because He loves us. So His role is to lead. Our role is to know and obey His just ordinances and just watch how He works. Nehemiah, as I've mentioned, is a book of restoration. It's a book of restoration. And so we can either allow God to restore us or we cannot allow God to restore us. When we, at the beginning of chapter 9, when we mourn over our sin, when we recognize our sin, when we read God's Word, when we brush up our lives against the truth, one of two words is going to drive us. We're either going to embrace or we're going to be embarrassed. I think those will show up on the screen, right? One of two words will... Do we have those words? Yes? Embarrass or embrace. Don't be embarrassed. Embrace the God that embraces you. Embrace the God that embraces you. Embrace God's people who will embrace you when you brush up against your sin. Mourn over your sin, but don't run from God. Embarrassment will cause us to run from God. I got a call 
last night, minutes before I came down, so I couldn't take it, uh, couldn't take the call. <laughs> um, and it was from a brother that, hadn't, had, that just had, had, hadn't seen for a few months, right? And I called him earlier in the week, and I'm just like, man, I love you. I hope you're okay. Man, just, I'm here for you, you know? And he left a message. Uh, uh, that was early in the week. So he left a message right before I walked down here to preach last night, and he just said, I'm, I'm doing good. He goes, I'm just, I'm embarrassed, you know? And, uh, right? So he's, he's running from God out of his embarrassment. We don't need to be embarrassed. We all have sin. We all have our stuff. Mourn over your sin and embrace the God that embraces you. Embrace the people that will embrace you. I hope that you will embrace God. I hope that you will run to God. Verse, uh, Psalm 9 verse 10 tells us this. That those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. We don't need to be embarrassed. Just repent. Mourn over your sin. But embrace the God who embraces you. He will never forsake you when we seek Him. So earlier in verse 3 of chapter 9, verse 3, you don't have to look there, but verse 3, if you remember, tells us that for three hours they were in the Word. A fourth of the day. And for three hours they were in confession and worship. Three hours in the Word, three hours in confession and worship. Here's the point in all that. And here's my takeaway for you. Take time to be holy. That's the takeaway. Three hours in, in, in the Word and three hours in confession and worship. It takes time to be holy. It takes time to be holy. Whatever you are, whatever you've done well, it didn't just happen. It takes time, doesn't it? Whatever your skill sets are, whatever your talents are, it takes time to be that. It's going to take time to be holy. I'm going to invite up the worship team as I pray. And when we're done uh, with our worship song, our worship set, um, if you need prayer, our prayer team is available here to your left. Um, Hope you guys have a great week. I hope you all take some time to be holy this week. Take some time to be holy. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful to take this time to be with you, to hear from you, to be together as the church, the church that you love, the church that you died for, the church that you want to take um, serious, this whole idea of mourning over our sin and confessing our sin and worshiping you and being in your word. Lord, we pray that you've been indeed glorified uh, today by our time together. It's in your your name we pray. Amen.